Right. Good morning. Good to see you this morning, church. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. If you want to go ahead and begin to find your place there. And as Spencer just mentioned, yes, we're just a few weeks away um, from Easter, three weeks from today, I believe. And so excited about that. Incredible opportunity we have every year to engage our community, to engage Ballin Park and our neighbors, wherever you might live, whatever neighborhood you might live in, our co-workers, uh, our family members with the gospel. Uh, we always, every week here, uh, strive to make sure all of our sermons um, are gospel-centered, uh, that we're singing the gospel, that we're preaching the gospel, uh, that we just want gospel everywhere throughout the life of our church. And then on Easter, I can guarantee you, there will be, uh, Lord willing, uh, there will be a... I'll, if I'm the one sharing the message, Lord willing, I will be sharing a gospel clear message and extending an opportunity for your loved ones or your friends um, to trust Christ personally. And so if you've got someone that you want to invite and you want to get um, in front of the gospel so that they'll hear the gospel, I want to partner with you in that and, and pray for you. Uh, we're going to give you an opportunity uh, here in the next couple of weeks to, um, to partner with us in prayer for that. And um, and just that, for you to bring them, invite them, meet them here, grab lunch with them afterwards, brunch, whatever, and uh, at our, either our lake service down in Ballin Park, uh, downtown, down at the Village Center, or in our service here, uh, as we will share the gospel with them and give them an opportunity uh, to respond to the gospel. And so be praying about who God would have you invite and, um, and to get in front of the gospel. And so, because we've got people uh, in our lives, um, in our families that need the gospel and uh, we've got people in this neighborhood um, here in Ballin Park where we meet every Sunday who need the gospel. And at the end of the day, most people are going about and they're doing their life this morning. Um, most people in this neighborhood and in our city. Um, and really, the gospel's not even on their mind. They haven't given thought to Jesus today. And that's a shame because uh, they're made for him. And in fact, um, to kind of parallel that with the sermon this morning... There are really about three basic ways to live life. And the majority of planet Earth are living in one, in one, in one of the first two ways. Um, we're either, we either live our lives and make our decisions every day uh, based on morality, right? And so religion can go into that, but just sort of grounded in making good moral decisions. And so we try to be moral people. And so whether that's uh, why we do or don't do the things we do at work or in our family, in our neighborhood, is based off trying to make good moral choices, right? And then on the other side of that, there are people that live their lives in a more immoral fashion or ir in an irreligious fashion. Uh, and really their lives are really based more just, they're not really thinking about their morality outside of what affects them personally. And so, and depending on how far they take that on a scale, right, the, the more... Um, perverse that gets and the more destructive that gets to society around them. Now, most people, most people are living in both of those worlds. And we've got some sense of morality and we're trying to do certain things that we feel like are right and that we know that are kind of socially acceptable or not acceptable. But at the same time, there are areas that are really, if we got quite honest in our lives, that are sort of immoral, okay, that are out, at least as, as laid out in scripture. And we, people kind of go back and forth between those two areas. But the Bible presents to us kind of a, a third way. That's the way that Paul lays out for us in Galatians out of these two realms because the first two ways are really one way, okay? So whether you've got a friend who you go, man, when I, when I think about this person um, or I think about the way I was before Christ, I was, I was more of this person. I was very religious and very moral, but I was lost. Or, man, I was just out living all out, doing whatever I wanted to do, could care less about more, making good moral choices, could care less about church. Whatever category your friends fall into, whatever category you fell into, 
they're really both the same way. And the Bible refers to that way we're going to see this morning as the way of the flesh. It's a way that is in our power and in our strength doing what we feel is right, doing what we want to do. And then the new way of life that Christians are to live in is the way of the Spirit, the way of the Holy Spirit. And all those who have placed their faith in Christ as Savior live and walk in that way and long to live and walk in that way. So the way of the flesh is a way void of a Savior. In fact, it's a way where you sort of act as your own functional Savior. But the Bible says Christians live an entirely different way, the way of the Spirit, a way of supernatural enablement, living our lives totally radically different than the world around us. The Holy Spirit enables us to live in obedience to God. So there is morality there, and he also frees us to walk in freedom from immoral choices that we may have made once before. But because we still live in this broken, messed up world, and we still have this fallen flesh, we too just like the Galatians, can kind of go back to that old way of just strict moralism or that old way of morality and get out of the way of the Spirit. What we need is help. What we need is help from an outside source. Every person who has looked on Christ in faith has this outside helper who has come to actually reside in our lives, and that is the Holy Spirit. Okay, the Holy Spirit. And in Galatians 5, 13 through 26, the Apostle Paul addresses the Holy Spirit and his life and activity in the life of a believer. He's going to show us how our freedom in Christ that we've been talking about for several weeks now is to be lived out in spirit empowerment. It's the only way to avoid both legalism, okay, which he addresses in the first part of the book. Most of what we spend our time is is avoiding becoming legalistic and, be- and thinking that by keeping the rules it will somehow justify ourselves before God and make ourselves more pleasing to God and sort of, quote-unquote, save ourselves by be- keeping all the right rules. And at the same time, avoiding the other ditch, okay, if that's a ditch on the right, the ditch on the left is a libertine or lawless lifestyle that says, you know what, since Jesus loves to save and I love to sin, sounds like a good relationship, Right? So I'll just live how I want to, and I'll just ask for forgiveness at the end of every day, and I'll just pursue every wanting, craving, desire in my heart and life and, and rejoice in God's forgiveness at the end of the day. And the Bible condemns that behavior as well. And so how do we avoid that? Well, we need the way of the Spirit. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. If we are to be truly free, and at the same time, to not abuse our freedom in Christ, we need the Holy Spirit's help. And the good news is that his presence is promised to every believer. If you're here this morning and you know Christ personally, I can promise you, if you have a genuine relationship with Christ, if you've turned from your sin and embraced Christ as Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit lives in your heart. God has taken up residence in your life and in my life. He is here this morning. He is in our midst. And he longs to move and to work in your heart and life and to empower you to live in a way that pleases God, that glorifies God, that makes much of Jesus and wants to use you right where you're at, wherever you work, wherever you do life, wherever you live, to make much of Jesus and to reach people for Jesus. You say, well, I don't feel like I'm experiencing that. It's not because he doesn't want you to. He wants you to yield to him so that you can experience that in your life. So let's talk about that this morning from Galatians 5. We're going to be in verses 13 through 26, and we're going to take it chunk by chunk. So let's start in verses 13 through 15. Galatians 5, look with me at verses 13 through 15. Paul writes to the Galatians, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. There's that word that we talked about in our introduction. 
But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Strong words there from Paul. And what we see here in these first few verses is that there is an expectation in the life of every believer that has been set free in Christ, no matter if you're a new Christian or you've been saved for 10 years or 50 years, the expectation is that you would steward your freedom well and not use your freedom in Christ as an opportunity for the flesh. And he's addressing the idea that someone would use their freedom to sin. That they would say, well, since I'm free, I can do whatever I want. Or as I said earlier, since I'm in the business of sinning and Jesus is in the business of forgiving, sounds like a good relationship. In other words, he's warning us against making our freedom about us. Being so selfish that the only thing that we can think about is doing what we want to do. And Paul says, no, it's to be used to serve others in love. Your freedom from condemnation, your, your freedom from guilt, your freedom from shame, your freedom from works righteousness, your freedom from your sin is to be used as you walk in it and steward it in a way to show that you love other people. Paul is showing us that truly walking in freedom means you don't walk in legalism or libertine lawlessness. It means neither self-righteousness nor immorality. It means you are free so you can love and serve God and others. The Christian life is not about us. Not even our freedom as we see. I mean, we, that's something that we would have a tendency to just kind of revel in, right? Oh, I'm free in Christ. But he says, yeah, but it's really not simply about us. It's about what God wants to do through us in the lives of other people. And that's where he turns to in the last two chapters of Galatians. Because see, Jesus, our Savior... Gave himself away, right? That's the whole gospel, right? That Jesus comes and he gave himself away. He died for us in our place and rose again so that we could be saved. And as those who are following him, what else should we expect but that he would call me and you to give ourselves away? To love like he loves. Now, a false teacher in their day might have said something like this. Oh, but the law, Paul. If you don't try and keep all the law's rules and ceremonies and the days and the years and all the different things that you need to observe in the law, if you don't keep that Mosaic law in place, all of it, and get these Gentiles, these non-Jewish people who are coming to faith in Christ, to begin to observe the law and to become Jewish and to fall in line, they're going to run wild. They'll be doing all kinds of things. Have you seen the things these Gentiles do in their temples to these false gods? Have you seen the things that go on in Galatia and in Corinth and in Ephesus and in these places where Gentile believers were coming to faith in Christ? It's lawlessness. we got to give them the law. But Paul says the law is fulfilled in loving your neighbor as yourself. Now why would he say that? Well, first of all, you can't love your neighbor as yourself if you don't love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. See, the first commandment that Jesus said is the most important, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second commandment, commandment are created. Uh, or, or excuse me, are connected. <laughs> because the God who created you to love him and to serve him and to worship him also created you to love God, excuse me, to love you, to love others and to serve others who are made in his image. And if you don't love God, you cannot truly love his image bearers. There will always be some selfish motive behind it. What can I get? Instead of just simply, what can I give? 
And if you love your neighbor as yourself, and if you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you will not do the things that the moral law forbids against God and neighbor. It's rooted in love. So if we really love our neighbor as ourselves, then we're really showing that we love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that will begin to move us away from the things that the law forbid it in the first place anyway when it comes to moral choices. And notice, Christians have a real threat in our midst. As those who have been set free by Christ and called to steward that freedom well, he says what? Be careful that you don't bite and devour one another. Because, see, we'll either be about the business of loving one another and serving one another, or we will be about the business of biting one another and devouring one another. He speaks in hyperbole here to make a point. He's saying, listen, either, either your relationships in the church and with other people are going to be guided by love, and that's going to be the foundation, and you're going to love others, and you're going to serve others, or you're going to bite others, and you're going to devour others. You're either going to give or you're going to take. And everybody's always doing one or the other, right? We're either life-giving and we're loving and we're serving and we're encouraging and we're, or we're biting and we're gossiping and we're slandering. Or even our what looks like love is really just a way to devour our brother. We'll just become leeches, taking what we want, what we can get from them to build ourselves up, make ourselves feel good. But we're not getting anything out of it. We'll walk away. So that's a threat that we're under here. And see, the New Testament is full of these one another's, you might call them. If you read the letters from Paul and from Peter, you'll just see all these one another's. Love one another. Walk in peace with one another over and over again about being unified and loving and serving one another. But without love, we just turn on one another. That's all we'll do. We'll devour one another. So there's an expectation being set here that those who walk in freedom, those who know Christ, true believers in Christ, we're to use our freedom in a way that shows love. But how? How do we consistently walk in love towards people who offend us, who sin against us? You ever been sinned against? Don't point, but you know. You ever been sinned against? How do, how do we walk in love towards people when we still have sin in our own lives that we battle and struggle with? When we're too thin-skinned. And if you got real honest, most of us are too thin-skinned. And some of that's rooted in sin and pride. Selfishness. How in the world are we to love and serve one another and to love our neighbor as ourselves? We, we run right through that, right? It rolls right off the tongue. Looks good on a t-shirt. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's a high calling. But you know how much you love yourself? I love myself pretty well. Might not can tell, but I, I haven't missed a meal in a long time. Right? We, the point is, it's just, it's just natural. You take care of yourself. You look after yourself. You don't put yourself in harm's way on purpose. It's, it, it's nor, when people don't do those things, right? When they purposely put themselves in harm's way and they don't take care of themselves, we say something's unnatural about that. Something's not right. They need help. We, we seek to intervene. It's normative. And he's saying just as normative as it is for you to do that, it should be, for the Christian, it should be just as normative for us to love people as much as we love ourselves. But how? How? When there's all this sin and there's all this brokenness and we struggle and we have this battle. I mean, let's be honest, it's not easy. Because we're not very lovable. Right? Jesus died for us and he loves us, but he didn't do it, do it because we're awesome. He's awesome. He's loving. Not because we're so lovely. In fact, we can be downright unlovable at times. We can be mean and honoring. All of us can be. 
So how in the world do we do this when there's still this thing called sin that clings to us? You know, um, my five-year-old son, Cannon, when we'll talk about the gospel, we'll talk about how Jesus, you know, I'll say, you know, I'll ask him questions, just to always ask him, make sure he's tracking along, you know. Cannon, why did, why did Jesus come, you know, to die for our sins? Now, what did Jesus do when he died for our sins? And his phrase that he always uses is he took our sins away, takes our sins away. But then he, last two or three times I've asked him that, he'll respond this way he'll immediately. I mean, it can be months apart, and he'll ask this question, he'll say, but if he takes our sins away, what happens if we still do them? I'm like, you know, that's a really deep question for a five-year-old. I'm going to need to go Google this. No, but, but, but that's the question we're all still struggling with, right? What about this? What happens if we do it again? Why do we do it again? Why do we still struggle with this? Why do believers still sin? And the bigger question, we understand all that, right? Because we're, we're still in this broken world and we still have this, what Paul's talking about this morning, this flesh. And the real question is, how do we get victory over it? How do we get victory over this flesh? And that's the big question of the Christian life. How do we live the Christian life in a way that actually shows we're Christians? That's <laughs> different than everybody else. It's not just strict moralism. And at the same time, it's certainly not immorality. How do we live in a way that's different? That's not simply about keeping rules. But at the same time, it's certainly not a way to just break rules. How do we walk in victory over our selfish desires, our greed, our anger, our lust, our bitterness, our unforgiveness? How do we become kind, generous, patient, self-controlled people? That's a good question. And we struggle with that all the time. Because here's why. Because there is a conflict in our lives that if you're a Christian, you feel every day. You say, I don't ever feel any struggle, any tug of war in my life. You're probably not a Christian. There is no such thing as a Christian that doesn't have a war going on inside of them. And it's the war that Paul's about to lay out for us between the flesh and the spirit. And it is an absolute war. Look at what he says in verse 16. Let's read Galatians 5, verse 16 through verse 18. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So let's pause there. So he presents to us this battle, this war that's going on. For every believer, the Spirit's presence in the life of a believer shows, first of all, in verse 18 there, that we're no longer under the law system, right? If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. It's evidence that rather than trying to simply justify ourselves before God by keeping the law, that we've trusted in Christ. And the war between the flesh and the Spirit is a new battle that begins to take place in the life of the believer. Now, let's be clear. Everyone faces a moral war. Just because you're conflicted in your conscience doesn't mean you're a Christian. That is a false teaching that runs rampant through our churches. And I'm confident there are a lot of people that aren't Christians that have a false assurance simply because they have a conscience. I've said this before, so I'm repeating myself. But let me say it again. If you have a conscience, that is evidence that you're not a psychopath, not that you're a Christian. Okay? Psychopaths sometimes maybe don't have a con Their conscience is so seared they don't have one. Now, everybody's conscience is at different levels. Some is more sensitive than others. Our Muslim friends have a conscience. Our Hindu friends have a conscience. Our atheist friends have a conscience. Everyone has some... You're made in the image of God. 
you have some semblance of right and wrong in you. As broken and as fallen, as messed up as we are, by God's grace, we all share this common grace called conscience. So it's something more than that. The Holy Spirit is not your conscience, and your conscience is not your new nature. Everyone has a conscience, even those far from God. This is something different. So there's a sense in which everyone has a moral war in their heart. But for the Christian, the war is distinctly different. One person said it this way. Every person has a moral war in their heart. The Christian has one that they can win and that they will win. The predominant desire of the Christian is to please God. It's not some 50-50 battle. The Spirit is present in your life, and He has given you a new heart, yet you still do battle against sin while in this life, but the predominant desire and weight of your heart is to want to please God. Now, you don't always do what you want to do. The Apostle Paul says that in Romans 7. He didn't always do what he wanted to do while in this body. But the predominant desire, the predominant heart goal of every believer is to want to please God. But there's a battle. And it's the war between the Holy Spirit and His presence in your life and your new nature and His working in your heart and the flesh. And so you've got the Spirit working, moving, trying to make you more like Jesus, but then you've got this thing that He calls the flesh. And your flesh is the reason you're not perfect right now if you're a believer in Christ. Your heart is new, but your heart is not perfect. You haven't been completely made like Christ yet. It's the part of you that is still being transformed to be more like Christ. The fallenness. The fact that we're still in this unglorified body. right? The Spirit works in your heart. He wars against your flesh because He longs to please God. And that will be your ultimate desire too as He does this. Now, the true Christian will long to please God, long to live according to His will, but they will fight a battle against the flesh that wants to do what we want to do. The spirit is centered on God and pleasing God. The flesh is centered on I and pleasing me. So the flesh wars against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. And although you really want to please God, when you don't, it's because you gave in to the desire of the flesh. The part of you that wants to call the shots, to be in charge and do whatever you feel like you want to do at the moment. And when you do what's right, it's because you give in to the desire of the Spirit, which wants to war against the flesh and to conquer those sinful desires. It's, more, it's kind of Jekyll and Hyde light, right? At all times, we are giving in to one set of desires or the other. Either desires of the Spirit or the desires of the flesh will always be dominating our life. And what Paul is saying is that it's the Spirit's desires that are to dominate the life of the Christian. True spiritual change and true spiritual growth is about yielding to the Spirit by the power of the Spirit to the desires that He places in your life. See, the Spirit's desire is to obey Jesus and to glorify Jesus. Jesus said the Spirit would come and He would do what? He would glorify me. Right? That's what He wants to do. He wants to chip away all the things in our heart and our lives that do not glorify God. And there's plenty. Attitudes and behaviors and actions. And, and he wants to chip those things away and make us more like Jesus. But our flesh finds that hard and finds that painful. And our flesh just wants to do whatever we want to do. Our flesh is spiritually lazy and self-centered and wants to do whatever serves us best while the Spirit wants to do what serves, really what does serve us best, which is making us more like Christ. And what Paul does here is he lays out in the next few verses the evidence of whether the Spirit is dominating our life or the flesh is dominating. 
Because one or the two is dominating our lives at every moment. Look at what he says. Verses 19. First of all, let's read verses 19 through 21. Chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now that's the first list. He's going to give a second list we're going to go over just Let's pause there. This is what we call, he calls it the works of the flesh. Now the next list is the very, you know, famous passage in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit. We're going to get to that and we're going to read that in a minute. So it's the works of the flesh and then he's going to give a list called the fruit of the Spirit. These are the evidences of whether the flesh or the Spirit are dominating your life. Now think about it. Isn't it interesting that he calls it the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit? One is produced in our power and one is mysteriously produced by the power of another. One is our works, our, us by ourselves, pulling, pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps, doing ourselves the best we can do. We produce the works of the flesh, but the Spirit produces the fruit, what? Of the Spirit. Duh, right? So what are the works of the flesh? Well, let's just go through the list here. Now, these are not comprehensive lists. Paul's point here is not to name every sin. He's giving you examples. He's not really naming necessarily every fruit of the Spirit. It's one fruit. We'll get to that in a minute. But the idea is to give you an idea of what it looks like to have the Spirit dominate your life. So what does it look like when the flesh dominates your life? Well, first, he gives a list of sexual sins. He says sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. Sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. It's where we get our word pornography. It speaks to sexual activity outside of that between a married man and a woman. Anything outside of sexual activity between a married man and a married woman married to one another, one husband, one wife, right? Is porneia. It's kind of the junk drawer for sexual immorality in the Bible. It's a very broad term that means any of that sexual activity outside of that. So adultery goes into that category. Homosexuality goes into that category. Any other sin that you can think of that is sexual like that goes into that category. Impurity is a word that speaks to uncleanness that keeps you from God. Particularly here, the uncleanness that results from the sexual sin. And then sensuality speaks to sexual indulgence, proud sin. It's really one of the key sins of our culture. It's not just sexual sin. It's completely, it's just indulgence, proud of it, boast about it, march for it. It's in complete giving yourself to that. And he says, these things characterize the works of the flesh. So when we see people and meet people who are engaged in these activities that do not know Christ, we shouldn't be shocked. We're here to love those people, pray for those people, share Christ with those people, invite those people into this room to hear the gospel because we were those people. We're not supposed to be anymore. But this is what God calls His people out of. Idolatry and sorcery. We know what idolatry is, right? Putting anything in the place where God deserves to be. Sorcery is a unique word. It's from a Greek word where we get the word pharmacy, pharmakeia. So we get our word pharmacy because in their day, drugs were many times used in false idol worship. So these kind of are kind of in groupings. And so sorcery was many times used in their idolatry. And they would use drugs to worship their idols. 
and, the, and use their drugs in occult and witchcraft worship. And at that same time, they would use drugs along with their idol worship to conduct things like abortions. This term is broad enough to condemn all of that, by the way. Because in our culture, what do people do? They worship their God of wanting sexual desire and doing whatever they want to with their body. And many times they sacrifice a child on that altar. Sexual immorality, idolatry, sorcery. The game hasn't changed. New and creative ways. It's broad enough to condemn all of that. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. What is that? And these are obviously relational sins, right? Enmity and strife is deep-seated ill will, deep hatred and evil motive towards other people. Strife is quarreling and bitter disagreements that are rooted in that very enmity. Jealousy, a greedy longing for what belongs to someone else. This is a person not happy with what God has given them compared to with what God has given someone else. He says, that's a work of the flesh. Fits of anger, quick outbursts, blowing up. Work of the flesh. Rivalry, selfish ambition is what that is. It's the idea that I must be successful no matter the cost. So I will just one-up the person every time no matter how it makes them feel. Dissension. That's discord. Not being able to get along. Divisions. That's factions. A group gets together to pull away from the other group. That happens in churches sometimes. That happened in their day a lot. False teaching many times will breed divisions and a little faction will get around this false teaching and they will emerge out of a group. He says that's a work of the flesh. It's not of the spirit. Envy. That's much like jealousy. It's a, but it's a resentment towards others for what they have or achieved. I don't, I'm not just jealous of you. I resent you because you have what I don't have. That's envy. Drunkenness, orgies and things like these. Drunkenness, that's the abuse of alcohol. Orgies, usually associated with alcohol. It's the idea of a wild, drunken party. It's not really the sexual overtone. It's, 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 a, it's an alcohol-based, just wild, drunken party that nobody remembers the next day. So that, he's just, he said, that's the works of the flesh, right? We're like, it sounds like spring break for some people or something, right? He said, it's the works of the flesh. We read the list and the tendency is we tend to think of these are things out there and we only read the really harsh ones, the, the sins that religious people tend not to commit so much. But there are a lot of religious sins on the list. You say, I don't have drunkenness in my life. I don't have immorality in my life and sensuality in my life. Well, how about jealousy? Right? How about envy? How about fits of anger and dissension? Any of us, any believer in Christ, can give into the flesh and can commit any of these sins. Any of them. And a whole host of other ones. We have to not read lists like this when we come to the Bible and see it as something out there and us is over here kind of going, now who do I know? No, We need to look and go, okay, it's in here. It's in here and it's just waiting to get out. How do I kill it before it gets out? Paul says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That in the original language literally means to practice, make habit of. Speaking of habitual lifestyle. Someone who indulges in something, does not repent of it, does not turn from it, does not confess it. Not someone who is 
literally struggling with the sin. Now, sometimes struggling with the sin is just a, is a Christian way to say giving myself over to a sin. But no, this is not talking about the person that's really trying to make war and repenting of sin and finds themselves in a relapse of that sin and they go back and they make war and are trying to kill that sin. This is the person that's, man, they're just making a practice of it. It's their lifestyle. We live together before we're married because we just live together before we're married. It's just normal. It's just, don't think anything of it. We do things married people do, even though we shouldn't be doing things married people do. He said, what is that? That's a work of the flesh. And he says, listen, those who make practice, those who make habit, those who make a lifestyle, those who give themselves over to that instead of over to the Spirit, they can say, we can say whatever we want. We can dress it up, make it look pretty. But Paul says, listen, I warn you, when it's all said and done, you're not inheriting the kingdom of God. Those whose lives are dominated by the flesh, who never change, who never show growth, who never show repentance, who never show maturity, should not be shocked when they reap the works of the flesh, the punishment and the wrath of a holy God. Christians are those whose lives are to be dominated by the Spirit. Verse 22. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But... The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is what the Spirit's doing in your life. This is what you're supposed to be yielding. This is what we want to give ourselves to. This list, not the other list. Now the term fruit conveys the idea, first of all, that this is a God thing. Because he says it's the fruit of the Spirit. You can go plant an orange tree in your yard. You can give it the best soil. You can, man, you can put some miracle girl on that. People still do miracle girl. Is that still a thing? I don't know. And plant it and do all kinds of things and tend to it, prune it, and do whatever you do to an orange tree. I don't know. I'm not an orange tree raiser. But you can't put oranges on that tree. Right? There's something mysterious that happens. <laughs> you tend to it and do what you've got to do, but at the end of the day, something mysterious happens. God has so made it so that that tree grows in such a way that, man, you can do certain things, but you just can't produce the fruit, right? It ultimately, we know, comes from God and the design of God and the purposes of God. And in the same way, spiritual fruit, it's not just something we can produce. It's not the works of the flesh. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's supernaturally produced in our life. There's some mystery to it. And listen, there's some process to it. You don't plant a seed one morning and walk out the next day and get an oak tree. It's not the way it happens. Or an apple tree or an orange tree. There is an element of process involved. And it's slow. <laughs> and we grow and produce these fruits, the fruit, of the, the, the fruit of the Spirit, more abundantly over time. But it's a certain process. It's a process, but it's a certain process. Because it's a Spirit-led process. See, if there's no fruit of the Spirit, there's no evidence of the Spirit. So we've got to always be asking is there evidence of the Spirit's work in my life? And if there's not, either I'm not a Christian or for whatever reason, I'm not walking with God in that moment. There's sin in my life. There should always be evidence that God's at work in my life, changing me, making me more like Christ. And when there's not, it's because I'm not walking with God as I should be. But it's a process. And sometimes we can't really see it. Sometimes we view it better from a distance, right? When you're in the process, you're like, I don't feel like I'm growing. And then five years later, you're like, wow, God really grew me a lot there. It's like when I was a kid, my, everybody probably had this at my grandmother's house. There was this wall, and every grandkid would go up and get measured on that wall a certain time every year, right? And you could go up to that wall, and I could see my cousins, maybe even some of my uh, uncles and nieces and 
uh, excuse me, uncles and nephews, uh, uncles and aunts, that's the word, um, dad, things like this. This was, this was his mom. And there was this place and there would be these pencil markings and Sharpie markings all over, you know, July 1st, 1985, Josh, you know. And I'd go up and measure that thing. I don't feel like I've grown. But then I'd go look at it. And I'd go, wow, look at me this year. Look at me last year, right? And it's different. And you'd step back and you would just see all these like, that's the way it is with spiritual growth many times. It's a process. And when you're right there in it, you don't really necessarily always feel it. You don't really necessarily always recognize it. But other people many times will be looking at you going, wow, you're growing. Spiritual fruit and growth can be like that. And it's also, it also, that is the term fruit of the Spirit speaks to the God factor. It speaks to the process, but it also speaks to the unity. It's singular. Fruit, not fruits of the Spirit. It's not like this list of things where somebody goes, well, I'm really weak in this one, but it's okay because I'm really strong in that one. And you know, <laughs> you know, seriously, you know what that is? That's not fruit of the Spirit. That's your personality. Some people are just naturally more patient than others. You say, this is getting really convicting. Listen, it really is. When we read the fruits of the Spirit, it should be really convicting because none of us are producing them in abundant perfection. Somebody said it this way, you're only as strong as your weakest fruit. That's really true. And that's how, that's how, as Pastor Tim Keller points out, how our personalities tend to make us appear stronger in some of them than others. The way you know the Spirit's really at work is when you see the areas that you're not personally just, that's just not your natural tendency and you see growth in this area, that's where you know God's at work. When you go, man, I was the most impatient person 10 years ago. But I look at my life now and there's so much more patience there. My wife, my husband sees so much more patience there. And you go, okay, that's the Holy Spirit. But some people, I mean, they just kind of come out of the womb patient, right? They could sit in line forever. They could wait around on people forever. They could wait, 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 wait. You know, it's just their personality. That's not necessarily the Holy Spirit. We've got to learn to separate. And the way we do is we look at our weak fruits instead of just boasting in the ones we think we're strong in. Well, let's look at the fruit. He says it's agape. That's sacrificial love, self-giving love. Many commentators will tell you you can put a period right there. And then let's, because they, they would say, in the context, right, he's been talking about love. We saw that. We're supposed to be showing love in our lives. First fruit he mentions is love. He's giving an emphasis there. Because truthfully, if we really love God with agape love, if we really love others with an agape love, man, the rest of this fruit begins to be abundant in our life. Joy. That's a gladness, a delight, a joy that exists in the midst of circumstances that can't produce it. It's not circumstances. Financial fruit. It's spirit fruit. It's peace. That's the freedom from worry and trust, a complete trust in God. It's a great security and peace of mind knowing that God is in control. Patience. It's the patience of or the, uh, long-sufferingness in the midst of difficulty and pain caused by people or circumstances. Kindness. That's the warm-heartedness, sympathy towards others. One person called it Tender concern for others. Goodness. Moral excellence. It's an active moral excellence and innate goodness toward others. It can also be translated generosity. Thinking of being generous in spirit towards others is what it means. Always giving of yourself. Faithfulness. Just being trustworthy. Being a trustworthy person. One people can count on. Gentleness. This can be translated humility. Even-tempered, mild, meekness, not weakness. It's rooted in a humility towards others. 
It's a willingness to submit to God's will in all areas of life. Jesus exemplified this gentleness, this meekness in his life. And he wasn't weak. Self-control. That's the controlling of your desires. Your passions. And he says, there is no law against these things. In other words, there's no need for a law against these things. They're what God desires for you. But what the law cannot produce in you. The believer doesn't need a law to see these things to grow and multiply in his life. The Spirit naturally produces them. Now we see two lists. One characterizes the life of the unbeliever. One should characterize the life of the believer. But the believer can, commit thing, can have things on both lists. Right? We can, we can give into the flesh. We can walk with the Spirit. We have a choice to make every day. So how do we walk in victory and see more fruit of the Spirit and less work of the flesh? How do we do that? Well, that's what he lays out for us in verses 24 and 25 and back up in verse 16 where we started. So let me read verses 24 and 25. Those and those who belong to Christ Jesus, Galatians 5, 24 and 25. Those and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Kind of getting back to that biting and devouring. Or as he said in verse 16, I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So three big handles for us as we walk out of here today. First of all, he gives us a promise to live by. Right? Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you belong to Jesus today, if you've been saved, if you've been born again, Paul makes a promise. He says, you have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's all the things that were on the list. The works of the flesh, he says, if you're a Christian, you've crucified them. It's past tense. He says it this way in other places. You're dead to sin and alive to God. That's good news. And he uses a graphic. Did you catch how graphic the illustration is to remind them that those old works are to be done away with? The flesh that produces them, he says, has been crucified, right? That's the moment you turn from your sin when you realize that you're a sinner and that God sent Jesus to die for your sins. That though you deserve to be punished for your own sin, Jesus died in your place, that He was crucified for you. That on the cross, your sin was nailed there. Your sin hung there. And the punishment you deserve was taken there. And three days later, He what? Rose from the dead. And we've talked about this. When the Bible, the Bible teaches, when you put your faith in Christ, it's like when He died, you died. When He rose, you rose. And He's saying, He's calling them back to that and saying, you crucified the flesh. You died with Christ when you repented of your sin and put your faith in Christ. But see, it's one thing. So, well, why is Paul putting that here? Why don't, it's a promise to live by. Here's why. Because it's one thing for you to be dead to sin and another for you to consider yourself dead to sin. It's one thing for your flesh to be crucified and another for us to treat our flesh as though it's been crucified. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 6, 11 and 12. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. See, we have to live like this promise is true. We have to choose to consider ourselves dead to sin. Consider our flesh crucified. Repentance is a lifestyle. Walk in a posture of our back to sin and our face to God, looking and longing to please Him. And it, What this means is, is we have to daily make war on our sin. That's how you consider yourselves dead to sin. You remind yourself constantly of the gospel and that that is dead, and then you actively seek to kill it. If, we don't, if we're not busy killing sin in our lives, we're not considering ourselves dead to sin. John Owen, the great Puritan writer, said it this way, be killing sin or it will be killing you. 
We have to make war on our sin. Love what John Stott said. He says, it's no accident that Paul says crucify it. Because he intends for this to be pitiless, like the cross was pitiless. Just as the cross showed a man being treated with hatred, we are to treat our sin with hatred. It's to be painful, like the cross was painful, because repentance can be painful, and rejecting sin can be painful. And it's to be decisive, like the cross was decisive. In other words, crucifixion was a slow death, but it was a certain death. And we are to render certain death upon our sin. Christians must daily choose to live as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Must daily consider our, our flesh crucified. But how? How do we live by that promise? Well, it's a promise. He gives us a promise to live by. Secondly, He gives us a power to yield to. Back up in verse 16, He says, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, which is another promise, right? If you walk by the Spirit, you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, He doesn't say if you'll restrain and not gratify the desires of the flesh, you will walk in the Spirit. That's not the way it works. You have to walk by the Spirit and then you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Your willpower can't produce the Spirit's work. Rather, the Spirit has to do it. The believer has a new power, though, given to them in the Holy Spirit to walk or to live by. He empowers our walk. The Holy Spirit is present and active in our life, but we have to yield to Him, right? We have to surrender to Him. We have to seek His leading in our life. It's the Spirit that enables us to daily die to our sin. Listen to Romans 8.13. Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. How do we put to death the deeds of the body? By the Spirit, right? We follow the Spirit's promptings and leadings in our life. And as you walk or live by the Spirit, you will put to death the deeds of the body. The Spirit that gives life to you brings death to your sin. See, I have the ability to move at about 60 miles an hour, 70, 80 miles an hour, 90, maybe even 100 miles an hour. Now, some of you are looking at me like, what in the world? Now, I can't run that fast, but I can get in a vehicle, and I can move that fast. But I have to get in the vehicle that moves that fast. I can't do it on my own. And the car isn't going to take me to 60 or 70 or 80 unless I push the gas. And walking in the Spirit is simply by faith Pushing the gas by the power of the Spirit so that the Spirit can take you to speeds, can take you to heights, can take you to levels in your spiritual walk, take you into victory over sin and the places of obedience in your walk with God that you can't go on your own. The Spirit takes you there. So we have, to, we have a power that we need to yield to, but we also have a path that we have to choose. A path to choose. He says, keep in step with the Spirit. All these phrases are synonymous, Okay? But keeping step with the Spirit has a, has a, has a, a distinct kind of meaning here. It, it means to, it, the verb meant to stand in a row, to be in line with, to agree with. It's the idea of adhering to a standard. Timothy George writes, in Hellenistic philosophical circles, this word was used to mean follow someone's philosophical principles. It suggests, therefore, the basic idea of discipleship. Conformity to Christ under the leadership of the Spirit. It's like he's laying down a line and we are to walk in it. The Spirit is actively seeking to make us more like Jesus, right? That's what He does. That's what His Word does, right? The sword of the Spirit. It's, he's laid it down for us. And we're to, to walk in that line. See, it's not just some mystical thing that happens. There are real choices to be made. And we have to make those choices by God's grace. We have to choose to walk the path that the Spirit has laid out. You can't have the power of the Spirit in your life and not walk in the path that He's leading you down. 
That's not how it works. The Spirit's placed new desires in your life that compete with the old desires of the flesh. You've got to choose the new desires and feed those desires and starve the other ones. The big picture here is that the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us. He is the one we kill sin by, but we've got to cooperate with Him. We need His power, but we've got to walk in His path. Going where He wants to go, doing what He wants to do. Following His direction. It's not just some mystery out there. This is a life in line with the Word of God by the Spirit of God for the glory of Jesus. Well, here's the question as we close. What power do you see dominating your life this morning? Flesh or spirit? What's the dominant power in your life? God or you? Do you see works of the flesh or fruit of the Spirit? And if it's the flesh, ask this question, why? First of all, have I trusted Christ? Have I truly been born again? Is my life so dominated by the flesh that I'm giving no evidence, despite what I say, that I'm a Christian? That's something to wrestle with. And if you're not certain about that, I, I urge you to run to Christ in faith and to grab hold of His gospel and to cling on to it with all your heart and rest in Christ today. Or, at this time, are you simply choosing the flesh over the Spirit and do you need to repent? Confess your sin to God. Seek His help to walk in the victory that He has for us in the Spirit. Believer, be on guard this morning. Your flesh awaits opportunity. It awaits opportunity. And if you want to walk in victory, you've got to live by the promise that your flesh has been crucified. You've got to yield to the power of the Holy Spirit and you've got to walk in the path that He has laid down for us in His Word. Let's pray this morning.